Let's reflect on our precious human life, specifically its uh, value and its purpose. And in doing so, to check in our minds how much to, to what extent we are fulfilling that value and purpose and where we could uh, improve it so that we can really uh, take advantage of this opportunity. So one of the uh, uses or purposes of our precious human life is to prepare for future lives. So although this is included if we dedicate for the welfare of all beings, the enlightenment of all beings, still it's very helpful to think of our next life and what kind of uh, person we want to be, what kind of environment we want to be born into, and then do check to what extent we uh, are using this life to create the cause for that by keeping ethical conduct, practicing the six perfections, and then dedicating merit for that aim. So beginning with your next life, then contemplate how you are preparing for it and using this life to prepare for it. It's one way of taking the essence of this life. And then the second um, usage or purpose of our precious human life is to progress on the path to full awakening. So again, contemplate uh, and ask yourself to what extent do I really think of that as uh, a purpose in my life? To what extent do I create the causes for it by studying, reflecting, and meditating on the Dharma, and accumulating uh, all the merit to support a realization of emptiness, studying emptiness, purifying to remove obstacles, and so on. And then 
the third way of uh, taking the essence of this life is to use it moment by moment, especially to practice the mind training, but also to be aware of how we perceive things, to check if things exist the way they appear to us, to observe when afflictions arise in the mind and then apply the teachings to release them and to generate virtuous attitudes and emotions in their stead. So here to check to see how we make our lives meaningful by doing this. So with that kind of awareness, let's generate bodhicitta and share the Dharma together this evening so that we can progress towards full awakening for ourselves and for all beings. Basic Lama meditations uh, are important, aren't they? You know, they really get us thinking. Okay, so we're on page 190, taking the essence of a precious human life. Okay, so Salinas says, if something is true, but does not have much to do with our daily experience, knowing it is not important, and our lack of understanding does not bring great problems. So, you know, I don't understand calculus and rocket science and finances, and it doesn't really matter. Yeah, finances I need to know a little bit, but not much, just to help the Abbey out. Okay, but knowing the great value of our precious human life is crucial to this and future lives. Yeah, knowing all these other topics, you know, not so important. Yeah, because anyway, when we die, you know, 
we're not going to take all that kind of knowledge with us. Okay, but knowing the value of our lives is important so that we can use it now. Unaware of this fact, we will not see our present lives as significant and filled with opportunity and risk wasting the chance to create the cause of happiness for a long time to come. And so this is, when I think about this, this is really the tragedy that I see all around, is people don't see the value of their lives and the purpose of their lives. And because the the vision is just what I can do and become this lifetime. And so some people, yes, really have a sense of value and purpose and they want to benefit other living beings because they see that as something, you know, that's valuable and helpful that goes beyond oneself. Because I think we all have some need to think of something bigger than our own little concerns. Yeah, we want to be part of something bigger. And uh, the Dharma gives us that vision because we talk about so many lifetimes and so many sentient beings and so many things to understand and share with others and so on. So we have a lot of meaning and purpose in our lives. But so many people around, you know, What's the purpose of their life? Yeah, maybe, I don't know how many people really think about it, sit down and actually think about it, and how many people just kind of go along with whatever is happening around them or however they've been conditioned to think or whatever they've been taught that they should want and have and be. You know, and how many people really sit and think, what is the value of my life and how do I want to use it? And so as a result, you know, if you don't think about that and if you don't have something that opens this wide horizon for you, then what happens is the value of our life becomes just being happy day to day. Yeah? And maybe having some long-term goals, wanting to make a certain amount of money, attain a certain position in society, be known as something, or, you know, having children that will give you a legacy, yeah, that will endure more than yourself. Yeah, so having kids. So, you know then with that kind of thing as as the goal and purpose and value of one's life, then when we cannot gain those things, then there's a big feeling of disappointment, failure, inadequacy, uselessness. You know, you want to have children because that will be your legacy, but you can't have kids. 
you want to make a certain amount of money, but you can't control the world and coronavirus happens and you lose your job or you're supposed to graduate and you, you know, can't have your graduation ceremony or whatever it is. And so, uh, you know, then kind of having certain goals, but then when you can't actualize them, feeling the frustration or inadequacy, and then the life, you know, uh, then self-recrimination, guilt, all sorts of things start to happen. And especially uh, now we've really seen an increase in the rate of suicides. And we know some people who have suicided recently. And then we get requests to do prayers for for people who have suicided. And, you know, and that's so sad because these people have a human life and they could make it so meaningful, but they've never met the Dharma or if they've met the Dharma, they don't really understand the purpose of their life or something doesn't connect, yeah? And so then the feeling is, well, the easiest way to stop my suffering is by stopping my life. And that's such a, um, it's so sad because our lives can be so meaningful. Yeah. And you don't have to be rich and famous to have a meaningful, purposeful life. You know, so people who compare themselves to the dream person that they wish they could become but aren't, you know, throw that away because that dream person isn't actually the purpose of your life at all. It usually has something to do with the eight worldly concerns. Yeah, but really think about how you can use your life and and be a benefit to sentient beings, even if you don't accept, you know, past and future lives. Yeah? Just try and be beneficial and kind to beings in this life. Make a difference in this life by having an open heart and, and you know, being generous with your time, your material, your understanding, your knowledge, whatever. Yeah, uh, so don't have a limited view of of your potential, because uh, you know there's so much more that we can really do. So instead, when we don't, when we're unaware of the meaning and purpose of our lives, instead we will mindlessly follow our self-centered thoughts which will lead us to unfortunate rebirths. But once aware of the rarity of a precious human life, the difficulty of attaining it, and the amazing things we can do with it, we will no longer think our lives are meaningless. Hmm. All living beings seek happiness and peace and I believe attaining this is the purpose of human life. 
Happiness and peace depend on hope. People lose hope when their lives do not go smoothly or they fail to actualize their expectations. Some people become depressed and some look to suicide for relief, but that doesn't stop their pain. But when we understand that creating the causes for peace and happiness are within our ability, despondency cannot take root. So when we really have an awareness of the value of our life, like I was saying before, you never get bored and you never get despondent. Yeah, because there's, you know, you see there's always something beneficial that can be done. There are two types of happiness, temporary and long-lasting. Experienced while we are in cyclic, cyclic existence, temporary or temporal happiness includes the attainment of higher rebirth as a human being or God. Long-lasting happiness is liberation and awakening, which are attained through spiritual practice. The way to make our lives meaningful and to attain these two kinds of happiness is by engaging in sincere spiritual practice, specifically the practice of beings of the initial, middle, and advanced levels. That is to say, we must aspire to attain liberation, generate bodhicitta, and ascertain the correct view of emptiness. If we have learned the Dharma and are skillful, no matter our situation in life, where we are or what time it is, the potential to enrich ourselves through Dharma practice is always present. And so here, when you think, for example, of the situations of the Buddhists in China and in Tibet, during the Cultural Revolution, when the monasteries were being torn down and the libraries burnt and society was in complete craziness. Now, if you've ever done any reading on the self, on the Cultural Revolution, it the whole society, it was like community madness. Yeah. Everything was was so uh, involved about, you know, transforming the whole society and being communist uh, that children were turning against their parents for not following the, the communist line. Uh, disciples were turning against their teachers for the same reason. Uh, they even... In some cities, instead of the stoplights having green meaning go and red to stop, since red was considered an auspicious color in Chinese culture, red meant go and green went, meant stop. And they wanted to change the, you know, the, the traffic flow so that people reversed those things. Okay, I mean, that's how kind of gung-ho it was. And people who, who 
weren't, uh, you know, proletarian enough, were even, you know, even people with great knowledge who could benefit people in their, uh, you know, through their knowledge, they were shipped out to do manual labor in the countryside. Yeah, so it was really to- to- a time of total madness uh, in Tibet and in China. And yet, you know, people who had an understanding of the Dharma and the meaning of their life, uh, they stayed alive through that. They had a sense of purpose. They did what they could to benefit others. Yeah, I talked to to one Lama, and he was telling me, because his family was well-to-do, that uh, they took over his family's house, changed it into a, a, a prison, and he became a he was one of the prisoners in his own house. So uh, he didn't have any of his scriptures with him, but he had things memorized. So he did retreat. He couldn't have a mala. The authorities didn't let him have, have prayer beads, but. He could estimate how many mantra he said according to where the sun was. So he did all these different retreats, yeah, while he was imprisoned in what used to be his family house. Yeah, so he made his life quite meaningful. Yeah, I talked to somebody else who... um, you know, was again imprisoned with a lot of different monks, and they and he was able to um, pass notes to them about the Dharma, or they would ask questions, and somehow he was able to, you know, answer the questions. So again, you know, keeping up with, uh, you know with their practice, and then, of course, being kind to others. And then, of course, we know the story of the, you know, the monk who was in prison for many years, who went to see His Holiness, and His Holiness, after he escaped from Tibet, and His Holiness said, what did you fear the most during all the years you were in prison? And he said, losing compassion for the guards who were torturing me. You know, so there he was in a situation of being tortured, but he was doing his dharma practice. Yeah. And of course, there's no accolades. He's not on the cover of a magazine. He doesn't have a website. Nobody knows about what he's doing. Yeah. But he's practicing. and making his life meaningful. And so were many people who, uh, you know, had the Dharma in their hearts and in their minds in those really dire straits. Okay, so, you know, when it's only says that whatever situation we're in, we can practice and not fall to discouragement. Uh, He's not kidding. Yeah.
Spiritual practice involves some form of renunciation. Misidentifying what to renounce, some people think they must give up happiness and undergo hardship and suffering by accepting extra problems and miseries that they did not have before. So, you know, I have to develop renunciation. Oh, now I'm so miserable, I can't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Oh, I can't eat good food anymore. Oh, I wanted to really attain some status in society. That's discouraged. And then plus, I have to work for all these other sentient beings who are a big bunch of nincompoops. And imagine taking on all their suffering even when I breathe. And I do this, and they don't appreciate it at all. Yeah, every time I'm I generous with them, they say, give me more. Yeah, every time I ask them for some help, they go, Bleh. you know, and I've got to work for the benefit and sacrifice my happiness for these beings. Yeah, renunci, I don't want to renounce. I want to be happy. Okay, so people think that they're renouncing happiness and and gonna they're gonna have a miserable life. Actually, what we're renouncing is suffering. We're renouncing dukkha. Yeah, we're saying I'm tired of this cycle of uncontrollable problems, and I want to get out of it. That's what I'm renouncing. Okay, And so the more your mind is really focused on the aims of Dharma practice, the more your mind is, the happier your mind is. And the problems you have in this life are seen as just problems in this life. Because... In your heart, you heard, you hold this long-term meaning and purpose. So problems in this life, somebody bosses you around, somebody doesn't do what you want them to do, somebody even tears up your monastery or kills your relatives, you know, you still stay, stay focused on things and incorporate whatever happens uh, meet it with a Dharma perspective and in that way, you know, really make our lives meaningful. Okay. But if we misunderstand and think that we're renouncing happiness and now I've got to go in the mountains and eat nettles like Milarepa. <sighs> nettles. Couldn't it to be chocolate? <laughs> Why does it have to be nettles? Yeah. And can't I just have a nice bed? Yeah. I mean, he slept on the stone, the cold stone. Okay. So Zolina says, if it were so that we had to give up happiness and just suffer more by practicing the path, no sensible person would want to practice the Dharma. 
Okay, so whenever our mind goes haywire and we start thinking that the dharma's causing us suffering or, you know, that we have to suffer to practice, then we have to recognize, oh, I'm not seeing things correctly. The Buddha does not direct us towards suffering. Rather, he shows us the path to be free from misery. He does this by explaining that the roots of suffering, ignorance, animosity, and attachment, are to be renounced. And the causes of happiness, generosity, fortitude, compassion, and so on, are to be adopted. He teaches a gradual path so that we can practice according to our capability at any particular moment. Okay, without having expectations that we're going to be Buddhas already and should be perfect sentient beings and then getting so down on ourselves because, you know, we have these grandiose aspirations and we aren't there yet. Okay, so we, we don't, we realize Buddha's teaching a gradual path, and that's what we're doing. We're gradually developing ourselves, yeah? And as we do it gradually, each step we take, we make it firm, okay? So that when we are developing a, a certain ability, we, we, you know, each step of the way of developing it, we stabilize and make that firm instead of, you know, oh, I'm so compassionate. I'm going to give away everything I have, you know, and you give away everything you have, and then they don't appreciate you, and then you say, ah, what did I do? Okay, so that that's not so wise, yeah. Or we practice, we're so hard on ourselves. I do retreat, I'm meditating 20 hours a day, combating my wish to sleep and renouncing my desire to eat good food. And I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna sit up in my meditation in my meditation seat and I'm going to conquer this body. <laughs> you know? And then, you know, you're able to do some of that and then you go, forget it. <laughs> you know? Okay, I was able to never lie down when I'm sleeping and always sleep in my meditation box. And so what? It didn't help my mind at all. My mind is still filled with craving. Okay? So to really, you know, practice in a wise way. So in this way, the Buddha's followers embrace a way of life in which they eliminate all suffering and its causes step by step, beginning with gross ones and proceeding to subtle ones. Okay. 
But we hear about the subtle ones, and it's like, forget the gross ones. I want to dissolve all the winds into my central channel so I can experience bliss and emptiness. But don't tell me to stop lying and stop sleeping around because I'm beyond that. <laughs> yeah? Okay? And then we, you know, we take it, we go and we buy all the English translations of all the tantras, you know, and we read them. And we don't understand anything. But we remember a few words here and there, and we don't understand the symbolism in the tantras. So then we totally go and do weird things because we're taking what's written in the tantras literally because we haven't bothered to study with the teacher who can teach us the real meaning. Okay. So in addition, the Buddhist disciples cultivate happiness, starting with temporary happiness, that is creating the cause for a good human rebirth, and progressing up to the ultimate happiness of Buddhahood. Okay. From this, we see that the purpose of spiritual practice is to bring a sense of internal peace, well-being, and fulfillment. One of my friends, um, there's a couple that have been doing uh, retreat for many, many, many years and are direct disciples of His Holiness. And I was talking with, with one of them and, uh, you know, saying how this whole thing of bliss, you know, when they say experience bliss, I have no idea what bliss means in Tantra, you know? What does bliss mean? And and my friend said, um, and he's been meditating all these years, and he said, I think of it as fulfillment. And I thought, I have been thinking about that ever since, because fulfillment I can understand. Yeah. When I think of bliss, I think of being so... Uh, what's the word? Almost giddy, uh, unable to contain myself. Yeah, which doesn't actually feel so peaceful. So obviously, I don't have the right understanding of what it is. But when I think of fulfillment, I think of just a state of internal peace and well being. Yeah, that cannot be shaken and that is uh, totally free of, you know, guilt, disappointment, self-recrimination, all those kinds of things. Just a sense of, yeah. So anyway, 
I, um, you know, bring a sense of internal peace, well-being, and fulfillment. Now, it doesn't say ecstasy beyond belief. Yeah. Although our ultimate goal is full awakening, the most urgent and immediate happiness to work for is that of future lives. And for that reason, practitioners endeavor to create the causes and conditions to have, a precious, to have precious human lives and abandon causes that create the contrary. So that's our first job. Okay. So now our favorite topic, the eight worldly concerns. Okay. So this topic sometimes can be difficult for people to hear because it the Buddha so clearly puts on display the state of our ordinary self-centered mind. And we recognize ourselves so clearly in the eight worldly concerns that sometimes it's really rather shocking, not to mention horrifying. Have you found that? Yeah. So in the early years, yeah, when Venerable SK and I were at Copan, which was your first meditation course? The sixth one. That was the one where he really went into. <laughs> I heard, I, I, I went to the, the eighth, but I heard a lot about the sixth. Every day, <laughs> she said. And also in the eighth course, continually, the eight worldly concerns, again and again and again. And Lama Zopa did not let up. Okay? He hammered it into us. And uh, in subsequent years, you know, I've gone and thanked him for doing that because obviously, you know, it has a powerful effect on your mind when you hear this again and again, you know, that the demarcation between dharma and not dharma is the eight or presence or absence of the eight worldly concerns. And you know, have being taught that at the beginning and having it emphasized, it it really it's always there in your mind. You're not able to give up all the eight worldly concerns at once. But there's mindfulness of when they come in their mind. There's an aspiration to do so. Yeah. And I can see the difference between those of us who had that hammered into us when we were baby beginners in the Dharma and people who instead began the Dharma with Tantra or began with, uh, you know, bodhicitta and emptiness, something like that. 
So the eight worldly concerns, you know, they're mentioned in, um, I, I know for sure in the Pali tradition and the Sanskrit tradition. I don't know how much they're mentioned in Zen. I'm sure they're mentioned in Chinese Chan. Yeah, for sure that. I don't know Japanese Zen. But, uh, and, but in Theravada, Tibetan, you know, they're all there and the eight are the same. And, you know, there's no kind of bargaining with them. Now, one misunderstanding we have is, well, I'll get into that as we go along, yeah? Because no sense introducing a possible misunderstanding before you've heard enough to have it. <laughs> okay, so although we have such precious potential, we often fail to recognize it. Or even if we do, we are often distracted and do not utilize it. Our tendency to pay more attention to gaining immediate happiness and avoiding unpleasant situations is often stronger than a clearer awareness that sees the value of creating the causes for a future life, liberation, and awakening. Yeah. Why is that? Because the appearance of this life is so strong and so overwhelming that our ignorance, animosity, and attachment are just riveted to everything that happens in this life. Yeah, it's so difficult to even think that there are other lifetimes. And so we become, we make this big deal out of everything that happens in this lifetime. Yeah, and we want to eke out every tiny bit of pleasure we can and avoid any tiny bit of pain. And we lose any perspective about the vast long-term purpose of our life and of our potential. Our chief obstacles at present are subsumed in the eight worldly concerns, four pairs of delight and dejection that produce anger and attachment. Okay, so it's always talked about delight and, and dejection, but whatever we have delight for, it means we're attached to. And whatever we feel dejected about, it means that there's uh, hostility or animosity towards that, okay? So this is the yo-yo mind. Yeah, if you ever wanted to understand why you have a yo-yo mind, the thing of the eight worldly concerns explains it very clearly. So the following quote is uh, from the, uh, the um, numerical discourses in the Pali tradition. Gain and loss, disrepute and fame, blame and praise, pleasure and pain. 
These eight worldly concerns revolve around the world, and the world revolves around these eight worldly concerns. Yeah? So everywhere we look, this is what is going on. And now, especially with what's happening with the virus, we see how the eight worldly concerns bring so much suffering to people. You know, when they lose, when people lose what they're attached to, when they encounter what they don't want. Yeah. Yes, it is suffering, but our ma- but the attachment that we have for eight, uh, for four of the eight, and the aversion we have for the other four, they make the suffering, they amplify the suffering, you know, trillions of times uh, and make it much worse. So attachment arises toward one part of each pair. Material or financial gain. Do you like that? Yeah. Ah, it's nice, huh? Okay. Good reputation or image? Yeah. Okay. Praise and approval? Mm. And pleasure, especially from sight, sound, smells, tastes, and tactile situations. You want that too, don't we? Aversion arises towards the other part of each pair. The lack of money and possessions, a notorious reputation, blame and criticism, discomfort or pain. Okay, so the nice things, woo, we're happy. And then when they cease, woo, we're unhappy. And, you know, when we, we've studied the three kinds of dukkha, the dukkha of, of pain, the dukkha of change, and the pervasive dukkha of, uh, no, pervasive dukkha of uh, condition, pervasive condition dukkha, no, pervasive dukkha of conditioning. I forget how I translated it. Yeah, it has conditioned dukkha and pervasive in it, and I forget the order of the three words, but they're in there. Okay, anyway, um, we can see that, okay, the first kind, the dukkha of pain, that is from all the aversion towards four of those, okay? The dukkha of change happens because we're very attached to the four nice experiences, yeah? And, and craving them and thinking that they're going to last a long time, we're very attached to them. But the more we have them, the more they breed dissatisfaction. And eventually, we have to separate from them or they lose their spark and we go back to experiencing pain. Okay, so illustrations of these eight. So the point is, you know, there's no way that 
delight in four and dejection in eight. There's no way to, uh, to twist those so that somehow we're going to have the perfect life and always be happy. Yeah. Illustrations of these eight abound in our lives. We try to arrange our lives to come in contact with attractive objects and people, tantalizing sense experiences, sweet, ego-pleasing words, money, possessions, and so forth. We complain when these do not meet our standard or when we encounter their opposite. Being preoccupied with these eight, which center on our own happiness in only this life. We become very reactive to our environment and the people in it. This emotional reactivity, clinging to what we like, pushing away what we don't, brings difficulties in this life and impedes actualizing our long-term Dharma goals because it distracts us from going in the direction of our long-term Dharma goals. And these eight get us involved in creating the opposite, creating the causes for more dukkha and more rebirth and samsara. Okay, so the first one, financial and material gain and loss. So I know nobody here is attached to this kind of thing, right? You know, it's all our families and the rest of society. They're attached to money. But we're renounced, right? Right? We, we don't care. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But before you ordain, you want to ask, if you can keep your money or if you have to turn it over to the monastery. And where you ordain is going to depend on the answer to that. Because <laughs> I don't want to give away all my money and possessions. I worked hard for them. I deserve them. Yeah. And then when you turn 65... I get social security, money that I never even thought about, and now it's in my account. I have a whole $600 each month. <laughs> well, that, that, I haven't collected mine yet, but when I do, that's what I'll get because I hardly worked at all. Some of you, your social security. I won't even ask. <laughs> it's probably two or three times the amount that I'm ever going to get. <laughs> no, I don't think so, because they work many more years than I did. What? <laughs> okay. So financial, material, gain, and loss. The first pair of delights and dejections involves our relationship with money and possessions. We are elated when we have a lot of money, or at least more money than we had before. 
Okay. Nice clothes. Yeah. Oh, but I've renounced that. But when I ordain, I want a new shimmed up and new robes. I do not want to wear hand-me-downs. Right? And I want my robes and my zen to match. Yeah. I want really nice shoes. And I want one of those special razors. Yeah. So either the one that has five blades or the, or the, the, the buzzing ones that Venerable Yeshi found. Those are really good. Okay. But, but I'm renounced. Okay. Right? Yeah. We want to, uh, so we're related when we have a lot of money. Nice clothes. Okay. A comfortable house. Well, okay, I don't have a house, but I have a room. And I want a bookshelf, and I want a bed that is just hard enough or soft enough so that I like it. I want a comfortable chair. Yeah. I want my favorite blanket. I want a mat beside the bed so when I get up, I put my little toesies on a nice soft mat. <laughs> okay, I want the walls painted a same color. But actually, if there's too much furniture in the room, I don't like it. Get this bookshelf out of here. Okay. Uh, why did you put such a big chair in here? I don't want it. Okay. And I don't like the blankets. Why can't I bring my own blanket with that I've used all these years? Why do I have to use the blanket that somebody else left behind? But you know what? We all take our blankets with us and we just don't tell the abbess. <laughs> so even though we're breaking a rule, she doesn't know about it. Okay, we want a comfortable house, a new car. Okay, good sports equipment. Can't we play badminton at the Abbey? You know? Or touch football? <laughs> we want good tools. We want an, an... Yeah, a chainsaw that never breaks. A sewing machine that's really good. Okay. What else do we want? What? Oh, a chainsaw that you can start. Fantastic. Definitely. We want that. We want certain kinds of walks, too, don't we? Okay. And certain kinds of things to, to cook with in the kitchen. Yeah. We want nice sets of tools with hammers and different size screwdrivers and wrenches and things. And you know what we really want? Vacuum cleaners. Really good vacuum cleaners. Not the ones 
that are really heavy that you have to pull or push, why don't they make vacuum cleaners that are light as a feather and just inhale all the dirt? <laughs> I want a vacuum cleaner like that. Okay? We want uh, toilets that are not stained like the ones we have because we didn't take care of them properly. That everybody's going, no, no, we took care of them properly. Okay, what else do we want? Yeah. We, we want what? Computers. Compute, oh, of course, computers. Yeah, with all the fancy programs and scanners and all the different things, and especially computers that work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That goes with the chainsaws that work, the computers that work, that don't delete your work. Yeah, okay. We want new cameras. Yeah. yeah. We want different color carpeting. Huh? Cat toys. Yeah. Actually, some people want carpeting and some people don't want carpeting. Okay. So when we did go Tommy, people did not want carpeting, so we didn't put carpeting in. And now they complain because there's no carpeting and it's too noisy when you walk there. But then we put carpeting in and then they complain because it off gases <laughs> and it creates allergies and there's dust motes hiding in it. Yeah. So what is left? A dirt floor. <laughs> huh? Concrete. Concrete, yes, a concrete floor. Oh, that, yeah, that one's gonna be real comfortable, concrete floor. Okay, so our list of wants and needs, because we don't just want these, we need them. Okay, yeah. Have you noticed that nobody said that we want more statues? <laughs> or we want more Dharma books? Yeah. Or we want more things to offer to the three jewels. Nobody says that. Okay. Okay. So, and we become upset when we are unable to procure the things we desire. Oh, I want to get this for my department but there's a $200 limit about what I could spend. So I asked the harmonizers and they have a $600 limit and they said no. And I asked the abbess and she gave me a dirty look. And so I can't get all these things that I want, but it's actually, I don't want them. It's for the abbey. It's for the abbey. Yeah. Okay. So we're, we become upset when we're unable to procure the things we desire. 
when they are destroyed or when they're taken away from us. Yeah. Or when we get what we don't like. This soap smells. It has fragrance in it. Get the beep, beep, beep out of here. I can't stand it. Get rid of this stuff. Everything around here smells. Yeah. Sadly, <laughs> many people measure their success in life by their material wealth. No matter how much they have, they are never satisfied and never feel fully successful. It's true, isn't it? When you think of your family and friends, you know, how many people really feel like they have enough and that they've been successful? Huh? I uh, read one thing that what uh, Bill Gates assesses in his life to see if his life has been good each year. And it's, have I made new friends and have I deepened the friendships I have? So something concerning other living beings. Mm -hmm. Of course, we need to take care of these practical aspects of our lives. But if we pay undue attention to material possessions and finances, we become a slave to them. Once we are entrapped by their lure, contentment evades us. Quarrels ensue as we try to procure more and better and more and better and more and better and protect what we already have. Yeah, that's why gun sales went up with the virus. You know, not because the guns are going to protect you from getting the virus, but because people think society will just completely decay, and then you're going to have to, you know, have a gun to defend others from taking your house or your bird feed or whatever you have. You know, already that kind of fear and projection. Yeah, so toilet paper, toilet paper and guns. Okay. Singapore just wants the toilet paper. Yeah, they've given up their guns. Good for them. It's nice in Singapore as a woman. You can walk there any time at night. Nobody bothers you. You're not afraid. That's very, very nice. Okay, we become arrogant toward those who have less. I have nicer robes than you do. Okay. Um, jealous of those who have more. You get so many offerings. Your friends send you new sweaters and new jackets every year. And they're just the right shade of maroon. 
and I don't get any. And we compete with equals, trying to prove our worth by having more than them. So my examples are relate, have been related to monastics because that's the audience in front of me. But the lay people who are listening, I think maybe you can make some of your own examples. <laughs> okay, give it a try. See what you come up with. Attached to financial and material gain, we work long hours and plan big projects to make us rich. Unless we are able to use the money wisely to benefit others, the process of gaining wealth consumes our time and energy so that we have little left for practicing the Dharma. Okay, so this is something I hear very often from people. I want to accumulate wealth because then I can make more offerings to the Sangha and to Dharma centers and to the Three Jewels. And I can, you know, support Buddhist publications and, and do all these wonderful things for the Dharma. So I really want to have a good career and, and do all of that, you know. And so people will, will come to me and say, well, I thought of ordaining, but actually, you know, if I have a career, I can really do so much better and buy all these things for the, you know, so what do you say to those people, you know? They go and do what they want. Then, because they've, they've all promised, you know, when I have money, I will give it to you, you know, or to your organization or whatever. <laughs> I've yet to see any of that, you know, for the people who, who said, no, I'm not, you know. So other people are quite general, but generous, you know. But the, but the people who say, I'm going to go to work for the, the Sangha, you know, somehow it, it doesn't always materialize. Yeah, why? Because we never have enough to be satisfied in our own life, to have what? we feel will give us security. Hmm? In the process of accumulating wealth, our ethical discipline is easily corrupted. Those who are greedy become involved in activities that harm individuals and society and that result in scandals and prison terms, as we see so many examples of. Unfortunately, some lamas and geshis initially live a simple life, studying and practicing diligently. They are very humble and not at all arrogant. Later, when they have many disciples, especially wealthy ones, they become ostentatious. They forget the many years of sacrifice they went through for the Dharma and are corrupted by seeking wealth and fame. We must be attentive to not do this ourselves. Okay. One Lama told me that when they were initially refugees, when they fled Tibet in 59 and they wound up in Baksa 
in the old British POW camp. He said that everybody was poor, you know, because they all just like left Tibet with only their tea bowl, you know, they didn't take anything with. And he said, when we were all very poor, we were so generous with each other, we shared things. But gradually, as we began to accumulate things and we became wealthy, wealthier, then some sense of competition came in. Who had the nicest temple? Who had the biggest temple? And he, he commented about how sad that was. Okay, so that's the first one. Financial material gain and loss. Yeah, which nobody has a problem with, right? Yeah, because we're all renounced beings. Okay, next one. Good and bad reputation and lineage. Image. Yeah, well, lineage too, but also image, you know. Okay, so we aren't attached to that either. All these other people, they want a good reputation. They want to have a, you know, they strut around and try and create a good image, but not us. We're renounced, right? Yeah, we don't care about that at all. Okay. But be sure and put my name on the things that I do. Yeah, and I looked in the annual report and I counted how many times my picture was in there and how many times they mentioned my name. And it wasn't enough. We feel elated when we are well-known and have a good reputation and dejected when our image is damaged. Yeah, we're so attached to that, aren't we? Are you more attached to your reputation and image or to money and possessions? Reputation. It's sad, isn't it? Because what is a reputation? Yeah, it's people's ideas. Yeah. A reputation doesn't have color or shape or materiality. Yeah. You can't see it or hold it or smell it or touch it. But boy, are we attached to it. And all it is is other people's thoughts. Uh, not just their thoughts in general their thought about us, okay? And not just one or two people's thoughts about us, because that goes in under uh, approval and disapproval. But this is the thought of a group of people, okay? My image in whatever group I belong to. Yeah. So you start even with your family. You want to have a good image of your family. Yeah. So that when all the relatives get together and gossip about each other, they say nice things about you. 
Yeah, not mean things. Right? Yeah? Okay. Uh, we want to have a good reputation here in the Abbey or amongst uh, the supporters that come. Yeah, we want to be known as, you know, the nun who does this or knows that or has reached this or whatever, you know. I am the kindest nun. I am the nun who had coordinates everything and get, get everybody to do things. I am the nun who broadcasts stuff. I am the nun who does, you know? Okay, so we want a good image. Um, you know, in regular society, yeah, whatever group, you know, again, within a family, you want a good image in your family, your workplace, boy, you better have a good image, otherwise you're not gonna get a promotion. Yeah, maybe beyond your workplace, whatever field you work in, you want people beyond that workplace to know about you and what you do and think what you do is fantastic. Okay, yeah, I mean, we want to be known in society and an invitation to speak at some kind of enormous conference you know, we won't turn that down, you know, especially if there's 5,000 attendees, you know, whatever your profession is, and you're invited to be a keynote speaker at a conference in your profession, woo, you know, or whatever magazine that your profession puts out, yeah, you're known in that magazine, yeah, you are interviewed in the Buddhist, uh, you know, uh, magazines. They mention your name online. Yeah. People think that you're really, you must have great realizations because they know your name. Yeah, I was hung up about that years ago. I was like, why don't they ever interview me in my Buddhist magazine? They interview so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And, -so and, -so -and, -so. and there's this whole crew of people that are the big shots. You know, like, remember in high school, there were the socias or the big shots. And then there were people like me. <laughs> okay? And... You know, why can't I be one of the popular people that everybody knows and everybody thinks is fantastic, you know? And ha and why don't I have long, straight, blonde hair? Because that's what you're supposed to have, you know? And I had short, brown, curly hair. And, you know, and I didn't date a football player. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to play, remember? Yeah? Okay. So, uh, yeah, I just yeah, never made it, never made it. So the same thing happens in the Buddhist world. There's this group of the big shots, and they're the ones who are always interviewed in the Buddhist magazines. And whenever there's a Buddhist teacher's conference, they're the ones who lead it, who sit up in front, and people like me are ignored.
So I really wanted to have a good reputation. And then I had a very good experience that cured me of that, which I think you've heard the story of. But there's a few people who haven't heard it, and I like to tell stories about myself. (laughs) So I will grace you with this story. So it must have been 19... It was the early 90s, and His Holiness was giving, was speaking in Arizona, okay? They had this big uh, Dharma thing in Arizona, and His Holiness was speaking. And uh, twice a day, morning and evening, and, and morning and afternoon. Then in the evening, they asked different people to come and give a talk, okay? So... Uh, one evening they had asked me to go and give a talk. So I gave a talk. And I think I was, must have been very funny that evening. Uh, and, you know, made people laugh or whatever, whether I said something meaningful or not, I have no idea. But anyway, the next day, His Holiness's teachings, there's a break, and I want to go pee pee. So I stand up from my chair and I head towards the toilet. And I walk two steps and somebody stops and says, I loved your talk. And I go another two steps. And oh, your talk was so good. And another two steps. And oh, I really appreciate it. And all I wanted to do was get to the toilet ASAP. And I couldn't do it because all these people were stopping to tell me how fantastic my talk was. Yeah, that cured me (laughs) of wanting a a reputation, you know, because it isn't worth it. (laughs) Yeah, when you can't make it to the toilet, (laughs) when you have to go, Your reputation counts for nothing. It's totally useless. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Continually preoccupied by what others think of us leads us... uh, leads to self-preoccupation and emotional instability. Do they like me? Do they not like me? Did they hear about what I did? Was I successful in covering up what I did? We pay a lot of attention to appearances and lacking sincerity, we use others for our own advantage. Yeah, so however we can use other people to introduce us to famous or rich people so that we could become more famous and rich. We do that, and we, take, we don't care beans about the other people. Yeah, we're just looking for advantage. Okay, we have excellent examples of that now in our government, don't we? Of people who only care about their reputation and look at the harm that is coming to the country because of it. 
Okay, reputation and power. Yeah, the two of them. Many people succeed in achieving a good reputation or a high rank, but lack internal peace and true friendships. Hmm? People are attracted to a famous person because of his or her reputation. Whether or not that person has something valuable to contribute to society is another question. Okay, so we look at the movie stars, you know, you have to have a certain kind of look, a certain kind of body. The sports stars, you have to, you know, again, be really good in your sports so that everybody looks at you, everybody talks about you. The, you know, Nike and I don't know, all these other people want you to wear their shoes and will pay you a lot of money to wear their shoes, you know, because you have a good reputation and then you can drive up their sales and you don't mind the extra money and extra fame at all, okay? Or, or you know how they have, what do they have? The Emmys, the, uh, what? The yeah, the gra- Grammy. <laughs> yeah, the Grammy. What? The Oscars. O- Oscars, oh yeah, the Oscars. Huh? The Tonys. Yeah, the Tonys. Golden Globe, you know. And so everybody, you know, It's amazing if you ever look in the pictures in there. The women wear as little as possible. And the men are buttoned up to here with tuxedos and down to here. You know, it looks like, it it looks crazy. And everybody wants to stand on the red carpet. Because if you stand on the red carpet... And they take a picture of you when you're standing like this. You know, you have to stand with one leg out and and your hip stuck out, one hand on your hip, you know? At least the women have to stand like that. Men, you know, they stand in some other way. But, you know, you have to stand like that and look really sexy. Yeah? Doesn't matter how old you are. You have to look sexy. And that becomes the purpose of your life so that you can have a good reputation. And so that you get more comments in the gossip columns in the newspaper than other people about what you wear. Yeah, or how much you don't wear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you look at what these people wear, it's absolutely hilarious. And how much it costs. And how much it costs. Yeah, I mean, thousands of dollars for what you wear one time. Because you wouldn't be caught dead wearing the same thing to the next Golden Globe or Tonys or Emmys or, you know. So you only wear it once. It costs how many thousand dollars? Yeah. And how many people in this world are hungry? Okay. Without being impressed with titles, honors, or power, 
we are better off looking at each person as another human being who has the Buddha nature and seeks happiness and not suffering, just like us. And that's the way His Holiness looks at everybody. You know, they're another human being, just like me. They want happiness and not suffering. I had to laugh when, I won't measure, mention names, but when, <laughs> when one of our leaders, you know, when a few days ago it was said that uh, when out in public people should wear masks, you know, so this leader gave the direction to the whole country, when you're out in public, you should wear a mask. But I don't want to wear one because it would be really not look so good if I'm sitting in the Oval Office and kings and queens and business people and presidents and prime ministers and executives and sports stars and so on came in to see me and I was wearing a mask. In other words, look who I hang around. Sad, very sad. So His Holiness continues, as a monastic, I am not so concerned about gain and loss of wealth. However, as the Dalai Lama, I sit on a high throne when I teach. And sometimes in the corner of my mind, the thought arises, I hope people respect me. When explaining the Dharma, I sometimes wonder, does the audience like this talk? Sometimes our minds are invaded by defiled thoughts. What a great practitioner I have become. I hope others notice. It is important to free our minds from expectations of receiving offerings, respect, and appreciation when we share the Dharma. We should talk about our faults and let others speak of our good qualities. Okay, so he's telling us how he practices. Of course, we must prepare before giving a Dharma talk. But if we are too concerned with our delivery or how the audience receives the teaching, there is danger that our talk is for show. How many people watched the, uh, the last, uh, last Friday night's teaching? Yeah, how many watched it? No. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, only 30 people? Hundred there. Oh, but these other Dharma teachers, so many people watch their talks online. Only 130 people watched mine. But what? Oh, yeah, it must be the video team's fault. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I, you know, I was so careful in my delivery. I mean, didn't I lead a really excellent meditation at the beginning of last class? I know you can't remember it. 
In fact, you probably can't even remember what topic I talked about last week. But wasn't it good? <laughs> wasn't it good? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> Instead of being apprehensive about what others will say about us, we should generate a sincere motivation at the beginning. Although I do not know much, I will explain what I understand. And that's it. That's what we have to do. I don't know much. I explain what I understand. When other people ask me questions and I don't know the answer, I have to say I don't know. Okay. So if we have that kind of mind, you know, I explain what I understand, then I will not be nervous. Then we will not be nervous and we'll speak truthfully. If people ask questions that we cannot answer, we simply say that we do not know and use it as an opportunity to learn more. Yeah. But I really want to know how many people watch the recording of it afterwards. Even if I didn't know the answer, did they think how humble I was and what a good spiritual practitioner I was for for being so humble and saying, I don't know. Yeah, I hope a lot of people watch that teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Did you send out flyers, publicity team? Did you put it on flyers? No, you're smiling. It's that smile. I know that smile. That smile says, hmm. yes. <laughs> There's a certain smile that says, mm, yeah, you think I'm going to do that? Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> but nobody knows who I'm making fun of. <laughs> they don't see you, you know? So now I'm ruining my own reputation because what are they going to think of me by putting, because I put somebody else down, even though they deserve it? <laughs> Okay, who's next? <laughs> yeah, what? Someone says you deserve I'm sorry, I don't have the right kind of clothes to wear on the red carpet. <laughs> um, okay. So His Holiness says, a member of my staff chided me, saying that I don't prepare my speeches well enough. Perhaps he would like me to make more astute comments about complex topics. However, I feel more genuine when I talk about what I practice and live myself. When I do that, I'm not worried about whether or not others like my talk. 
comments, questions? Early on, Jolene, um, just clarify that yes, the Zen tradition does cover the eight worldly concerns and that it's an important topic. The what comes The Zen tradition does cover the eight oh, worldly good. concerns and it, oh, it is an important topic. Okay, good. Yeah, I know the Chinese jam does. Didn't know. When we were at Luminary Temple and you taught on this topic about the eight worldly concerns coming out in meditation, then they told me the Chan tradition story of the uh, eight worldly concerns. It's called the eight winds, uh, unmoved by the eight winds. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the story is that there was a very famous poet, right, who thought he had realization. So he wrote this poem that ended with like, unmoved by the eight winds, I sit upright in uh, on a golden lotus. Then he felt very pleased with himself and he thought, I'm going to send this poem to the great Chan master who lives across the river. So he sends a messenger, you know, across the river by boat and then he gives the Chan master the poem who reads it and bursts out laughing and then writes two words and sends it back. Then the messenger sends it back and the poet opens the letter and then he just sees two words, uh, stop farting. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, basically means bullshit in Chinese. Yeah? <laughs> so the poet is like tremendously upset, right? So he gets in the boat and he's like, I gotta settle this with the Chan master. He gets in the boat, goes over to the monastery, but the monastery door is locked. And on the uh, door is pasted a note that says, I'm moved by the eight winds, blown across the river by a single fart. <laughs> oh, that's Alex Gerard online is asking, what or how might one behave if one isn't entwined with the eight worldly concerns? Yeah, what would it look like? You'd just be a nice, relaxed person. That's all. You know, there'd be space in your mind to be kind to other people. You don't get bummed out about stuff. You don't get anxious about stuff or worried about what other people think about you. you you're just kind of, you know, relaxed and, and have so much time to dedicate it to your, to your practice and developing Dharma qualities inside. Someone else is um, thanking you for the joy and saying that we need Dhamma laughs right now. The, Someone is thanking you for the joy and saying that we need Dhamma laughs right now. <laughs> Dharma laughs. Laughs, oh yes. Lofts, then a lofts. <laughs> okay, yes, we definitely need to laugh now, don't we? Yeah, we need to laugh all the time, actually. <laughs>